There's a pastor and a theologian uh, named A.W. Tozer. And he once said that how you answer this question, who is God? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, that's a big claim to make. And I recognize this question, who is God, is a big question to ask. But let's roll with Tozer for a second. How do you answer it? Tozer says, how do you answer this question? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, in their search for answers to this question, many people begin in the beginning. So say page one of the Bible. The very first line on the very first page reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For many, this is the first thought or the first uh, conception or, or image that comes to mind. God is a creator. Right? He's uh, a being who made heaven and earth. God isn't to be equated with the universe, but God made the universe. Right? The vast majority uh, of the world's population, it's not just Christians, uh, but the vast majority of the world's population believes that such a being exists. But who exactly is this creator God? And what is he like? Like I said last week, we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess at this. We don't have to guess who God is because God is not an impersonal it. He's not a subject to be studied, but he's a person to be known. God speaks. As you'll see, he sees, he hears, he feels, and he answers us when we cry out to him. And when we call out to him and when we come to him with our questions. In the second book of the Bible, which is the book of Exodus, the creator God appears to a man named Moses in a burning bush. It's a pretty famous story. And he says to Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he says, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries. I know their sufferings, right? I feel it deeply is what he's saying. And that is why I have come down to deliver them. It's the same word we saw last week, to rescue, to save them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And then says, now go tell that king of Egypt, right? Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses answers God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says, I am who I say I am, or I am who I am. Go tell them that. Tell them I am who I am, which in Hebrew sounds like Yahweh. Tell them Yahweh has sent you. Just uh, as an aside, if you ever are reading an English Bible and you see the Lord written in all caps, what you're reading there is uh, the, the name Yahweh. They've just uh, put it in all caps, the Lord. But the Lord, the Lord. 30 chapters later in Exodus 34, uh, the passage that we just had read, right? God appears to Moses a second time. He's actually appeared to him many times since then, but he appears to him another time, not from a burning bush, but from a cloud. And this time he doesn't just tell Moses his name. He actually goes on and he spells out his character. He says, I am the Lord, right? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This passage, Exodus 34, is one of the most important passages in the Bible. It's quoted, referenced at least 20 other times in the Old and New Testament. This is quite literally God answering our question tonight. We come to him with this question, who are you? And God says, this is who I am. Right? This is literally who I am. And there are three things that I want you to see from this passage uh, tonight. And finally, uh, a riddle that I think it, that it raises and also gets resolved. The first thing that I want you to see from this passage is that God self-identifies as a God of love. That's the first thing I want you to see. God self-identifies as a God of love. I'm getting this from verse 6. If you have that handout in front of you, you can follow along there. You can also follow along on a Bible app or whatever it is that you might uh, want to use. But in verse 6, God says, I am a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Another good translation reads, I'm a God compassionate and gracious, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. Now, love is one of those words um, that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, And because it gets thrown around a lot, it's easy to misunderstand. We can talk about love as a strong or intense like. Like, I love pizza, and I love dark roast coffee, and I love fly fishing. But we can also talk about love as a strong or intense desire. This is sort of the language of pop music and pop drama, right? The way that love is maybe talked about in the dorms, right? I love you, meaning like, I want you. I want you. But what both of these uses have in common, when we think about love as just a strong or intense like or a strong or intense desire, what both of those have in common is they're describing something that is out here or someone who's out here that you really want to have and to hold, right, to possess. But there is another kind of love. Some would say it's the highest form of love, which a theologian named C.S. Lewis calls gift love or charity. And this kind of love, love is not so much something Um, wanting to receive something or something to need, but it's rather something to give. It's a a commitment to another person's good, even uh, at great expense, gift love. It's a love that's characterized by self-giving and sacrifice. This is the kind of love, right? Gift love that gets celebrated at 50-year wedding anniversaries. We're celebrating that kind of love. It's the kind of love that so many parents feel. Right, for their children. I'm a dad. I've got a five-year-old uh, named Willa. She was born uh, at UVM's medical center right here on campus. I fell in love with Willa the minute that I knew Megan was pregnant with her and, and holding her in her womb. But the minute that I, that I saw her born, the minute that I held her in my arms, I knew in that moment that I would give everything that I have for this child. Now, that sounds cliche, but it's true. If you're ever blessed to be a mom or a dad, like you'll know what I'm talking about. 
It's not because I was getting anything from Willa at that point. Right? It's not, that's not why I loved her. I mean, babies don't give you anything besides poopy diapers and sleepless nights. Right? That's what they give you. The love that Megan and I have for Willa is not what, about what we're getting from her. Our love for her is about what we want to share with her. It's that gift love, right? It's that charity, if you will. This is the kind of love that God is highlighting here in Exodus 34. I want you to listen to the language that he uses. He says, I'm merciful and I'm compassionate. Now, the same word that is translated compassion is elsewhere used in the Bible to describe mothers who are holding their babies to their breasts. God's like, yeah, that's like me. That's how how I feel towards you. That's the way I relate towards you, like that. It's a love that is gracious, that uh, that is generous, that gives gifts beyond what is rational. It's loyal, and it's faithful, it's steadfast, and it's true. And we see it's overflowing in abundance. Those are other words that he uses. Overflowing. Always giving. Right? I picture a waterfall um, that's just constantly pouring itself out, never running dry. And this, God says, is who I am. This is who I am to you. I'm a God of love, of overflowing, abundant, gift love to you. The source of all that is good and beautiful and true, pouring out to you for all of eternity. It will never run dry. It existed before you and it'll exist long after you and I walk this earth, right? You've heard it said that love is not a feeling but a verb. And there is a truth in that, right? Love demands expression. It needs to take on flesh, right? It needs to show itself somehow. And how is it expressed here? Well, God says, my deep, loyal, overflowing love for you is expressed in compassion. And it's expressed as grace, as the giving of gifts. It's expressed as faithfulness. And it's also expressed as mercy or forgiveness. This is the second thing that I want to highlight for you tonight. God is a God of love whose love is expressed as forgiveness. Who is God? God is a God of love whose love is expressed as forgiveness. Look at the first part of verse 7. God says, right, I am Yahweh, right, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You all know, like, the Eskimos have so many words for snow, like they're experts on snow. The Hebrews sort of were experts in sin, and they had three words for it. Um, There's avon, which means perversion or iniquity. There's this Hebrew word pesha, which is transgression or rebellion. It's like crossing the line. And then there's another word to describe sin, um, avon, which means missing the mark, sort of falling short. And all of them God mentions here. He's like, I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgression. I forgive sin. 
What God is communicating intentionally is there's nothing that falls outside of my purview. It's not like I cover one and not the other. I've got you covered. I cover it all. I forgive it all. Nothing, yeah, falls outside of my love. And there's nothing that I'm not willing to forgive is what God is communicating. If you were to open up your Bible smack dab in the middle, you'd find 150 prayers called Psalms. And Psalm 103 says this, says that he, that's God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. One of the books that... um, that we used to read to Willa, my, my girl, who's starting kindergarten tomorrow, by the way. We're excited for her. Um, one of the books that we used to read her uh, was called The Runaway Bunny. You all know this story? Is it still in your memory? <laughs> it's about a little bunny. Go figure, right? <laughs> Who tells his mom, I'm running away. I want to run away. The mom replies, if you run away, I will run after you. You're my little bunny. The bunny says, if you run after me, I'm going to become a fish in a trout stream, and I'm going to swim away from you. The mom says, if you become a fish in a trout stream, I'll become a fisherman, and I'll fish for you. The little bunny says, if you become a fisherman, I'm going to become a rock on the mountain high above you. The mom says, if you become a rock, I'm going to become a mountain climber, and I'm going to climb to where you are. And on and on it goes like this. The mother reiterating her love for her child, saying again and again the same. There is nowhere that you can go where my love cannot find you, little one, little bunny. And the child finally relents and falls asleep in her arms. Do you all know Jesus told uh, his own version? Uh, of the runaway bunny. This is the Jesus version. He tells the story of a father who had two sons. And the younger son hated his father. And he wished his dad dead. And he told his dad, hey, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And the father gives it to him. The youngest son takes his inheritance and he goes off to a far off country. Burlington, Vermont even where he squanders his inheritance on sex and drugs and alcohol. And one day he wakes up, and the money is gone, the booze is gone, his friends are gone. And he's all alone in his apartment, his dorm room, and he's penniless. So he hires himself out to work on a farm. But he soon realizes that the pigs are eating better than he is. So this youngest son hatches a plan. He says, maybe I can go home. Now, of course, my dad is never going to accept me back as his son, but maybe I can become his servant. So he turns around and he starts going home. 
Now, when his father sees him in the distance, he doesn't stand on the porch and tap his feet with his arms crossed and be like, man, this is going to be good. That's not what he does. Instead, he drops everything. And he picks up his robe and he starts sprinting through the streets. You can picture it, right? Down, down Colchester, left on church, right on college, going to where his son is, right? And as soon as he sees his son, he wraps his arms around him. And the tears that are still hot on his cheek fall on his son's shoulder. And he kisses him. And the son starts up, Dad, I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He's right, he's looking down, he's maybe drawing circles in the sand. And his, son, and his father says, stop, shh. Bring quickly the best robe, which is his robe, and put it on my son. And put a ring on his hand and put some shoes on his feet. And let's go kill the fattened calf. And we're going to have a party tonight because this son who is dead is alive again. He was lost, but he is now found. This, Jesus says, is the heart of my father for you. This is how my dad feels about you. He is a God of love whose love is expressed as mercy, whose love is expressed as forgiveness, right? You can sin against him, and you do. You can waste his gifts, and you do. You can run away from home, and you have. Look, I have too. But listen, God says you cannot outrun my love because my love doesn't run out on you. It's overflowing. It's like a waterfall. You can run away from home, but the doors will always be unlocked. You can always come home. Always. Because who I am, God says, I'm Yahweh. I'm a God of love whose love is expressed as mercy, as mercy, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's not all this verse says. This verse says in the second half, I'm a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And maybe you get to the end of that verse, and you're like, what? I was with you on the forgiveness part, but this sounds different. <laughs> What's that about? Well, hang tight. Hold, hang with me. All right? This is the third thing I want you to see. God is a God of love whose love is expressed as mercy or forgiveness, but God is also a God of love whose love is expressed as justice. He's a God of love whose love is expressed as justice. Because God is love, because he's love, God gets angry when he sees his loved ones being treated like garbage when he sees people hurting the things that he has made, the ones that he loves. I want you all just to imagine uh, an artist who pours his life into his work. We can talk years, decades, painting the most magnificent paintings the world has ever seen. And it's the night before the grand opening and, and all of his masterpieces, all of his paintings are being uh, hung in a gallery. Can you imagine this? Now, I want you to imagine that 
after turning off the lights and leaving the gallery, somebody slips into that gallery in the cover of dark. And they're not there to steal paintings. It's almost worse than that. They're there simply to destroy. It's a vandal. He takes out a knife and he goes to every painting and he just slashes the canvases. And it's just like, whoosh, whoosh, right? Across all of the paintings. When the artist goes into the gallery the next day and he sees his life work torn to shreds, how do you think that artist feels? I know how I would feel. I would feel angry. I would feel sad. I would feel grief. And God says, that's how I feel too. I feel anger when I see the ways that my creation is being marred and torn and cut up. I feel sad. I feel grief. He feels this way because he loves his creation. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. And God is not indifferent. God is a God of love. And because he's a God of love, he feels deeply when he sees his creation being, uh, being marred like that. In the face of evil and injustice, love sounds like this is not okay. That is not okay. That's got to stop. Somebody's got to pay for that. Something has to be done to make this right. And this brings us to this point of tension at the end of verse 7. I think you feel it, I feel it, I think we all feel it. It's almost this riddle. God says here that he is a God of love who forgives sin, but he's also a God of love who's not going to turn a blind eye to it. He says, look, I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm not going to say it's no big deal when it is a big deal. I'm committed to justice, God says. But here's the riddle. How can God be forgiving and just at the same time? How can God forgive sin and punish it at the same time? That seems like an impossible contradiction at first glance. It's like you got to pick one or the other, God. You're either going to be forgiving or you're going to be just. But how can you be both? And then you meet Jesus. Then you meet Jesus. And then you get to his cross. And you realize, this is not a contradiction at all. See, the Bible says that Jesus is God's very own son, sent from the Father, sent on our rescue mission to bring us back home, to reconcile us back to the Father. And we are told that Jesus went to the cross to bear sin's punishment in our place. You see, you and I have all taken a knife to God's good creation. We've torn up that canvas. We all deserve punishment. But on the cross, Jesus takes the punishment that our sins deserve. See, God doesn't just say, look, that whole cutting my canvas thing, it's nothing, it's no big deal, I didn't really like it anyways. He's like, no, that was wrong, it's evil, it's bad, I hate it, and I'm going to punish it. And he punishes it to the max. He is absolutely just. He does not clear the guilty. But on the cross, God's not just executing justice. God himself is taking our justice in our place. 
He's not just meeting it out. He's taking it for us so that he can be 100% just and 100% forgiving at the same time. He bears all of the wrath that our sins deserve so that we can walk away scot-free. He takes it. He endures hell so we don't have to. Jesus is the answer to the riddle. He is the one that shows us how God can be a God of love, full of mercy, and full of justice at the same time. In a roundabout way, this question, who is God? It's Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to know who God is, look to me. If you've seen me, you've seen him. If you know me, you know him. I and the Father are one. Right? To take a good long look at Jesus is to look at the face of God. The question that I want to leave you all with tonight is what are you going to do with that information? What are you going to do with him? Because here's what Jesus is inviting you to do. He's inviting you to come to him. He's saying, I can give you rest. He's saying, come to me and come home. Because you have a good, good father in heaven. That is who he is. And you are loved by him. That is who you are. Let's pray.